You know, uh, the name of this message is, and you might want to write this down, Josh. Sorry, I don't think we got that written down. How the fear of God leads to salvation. How the fear of God leads to salvation. Very, very important topic. How many want to lead people to salvation? How many realize that's one of the reasons you're on planet Earth? You're, you're, you're still here on planet Earth to, to get saved, not only to get saved, but you, you got saved. But after you get saved, I always tell people, God just, a lot of people just rapture me, Lord, why don't you take me out of here? It's like, wait a minute now, not so fast. It wasn't just to make a choice as to whether or not you would receive Christ. That's not the only reason you're here. After you receive Christ, now he wants to make you like Jesus, amen? He's the firstborn of many brethren, and God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, amen? And God uses trials and all sorts of things, discipline, you know, his love, all kinds of wonderful things in our lives to make us more like Christ. And man, if you're like not becoming more and more like Christ, you better check your spiritual pulse, you know? That's important. And another reason, you know, just as important, I believe, or right up there, is to lead people to Christ. Amen? You know, the Bible says, you know, he that is wise wins souls. And we're ambassadors for Christ, as though Paul said, God is begging people through us to be reconciled to Christ. Amen? So we've got a lot, a lot of work to do. And I want to talk about how the fear of the Lord leads to salvation. Now, it's interesting because I thought this is a message that should help us in a lot of respects. It should help us in, uh, on, on, on at least a few different fronts. It should help us in regard to how we witness to others. Instead of preaching a wimpy gospel approach, a kind of a seeker-sensitive, easy-believism approach to where people don't fear God, and they just come to Jesus because they think their life will be better, but they don't fear him. They don't turn to him to flee from the wrath to come, which is what John the Baptist talked about in Matthew chapter 3. Amen? You know, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? When we come to Christ, we are fleeing the wrath to come. Amen? Amen? We recognize that we need a Savior because we need some, there's something to be saved from. Amen? Amen? And it's an eternal hell. And that's huge. And the reason many people are not converted to Christ is because a lot of times when people are sharing with them, they just say, hey, come to Jesus, you know? You know, live your best life now. That's a Joel Olstein book, okay? Uh, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Things like that. And people are like, well, you know, God has a wonderful plan for my life. Well, my life's doing just fine. Or I could just, you know, get some crystals. Or I can look at some medium and see what she has to say. Or I can do this, that, or the other. They don't, you need to motivate them to get right with God, amen? You let them know the truth about reality. That the Bible says, the point of man wants to die, but after this is judgment. And that's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God because he's a consuming fire, amen? So we need to speak the truth in love. And I've seen by the grace of God, not by my own doing at all, but by God's grace, a lot of people come to Christ. And what's the trick? What's the key? Some people say, how come you, you know, and, and, and strong converts too by the grace of God? Because I preach the word of God. I've Consider the goodness, his goodness. We always talk about Jesus' love, amen? amen. But consider the goodness and the severity. severity of God. The kindness of God leads people to repentance, Romans 2, amen? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom, amen? They're both two powerful tools for evangelism, showing God's great love. 
and showing also that he's a holy God that we have radically offended and that we deserve to be under his fiery wrath forever because of the wickedness of our hearts. Now, so the fear of the Lord, how the fear of the Lord leads to salvation will really help us a lot in the sense of encouraging us. Sometimes I do applications kind of here and there, but more at the end. I'll kind of do them at the beginning a little bit so I can encourage you to think about how this applies to your life. It's, you know, and listen to what Paul says. I, like, I love this. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, meaning if you know the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. And he said that in the context of the fact that each and every one of us will stand before the beam of seat judgment of God. And therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. And knowing the fear of the Lord, that I'm going to stand before God and give an account for my life. Now, the beam of seat judgment, thank God, that's for the saved. Amen? Amen? That's not about whether you go to hell or not. You're already going to heaven if you're trusting Jesus. Amen? Amen. And non-believers will not be at the beam of seat judgment. That's for believers. Just as, you know, believers will not be the subjects of the white, great white throne judgment. Amen? Amen? That's for unbelievers. It doesn't say whether we'll be there or not. But it's not us being judged because we've already passed from death to life. Amen? Amen? But we will lose rewards. And it'll still be a fearful thing to stand before God in some respect. So knowing the fear of God, we persuade men. So one respect, I want to encourage you to recognize that the fear of the Lord is something when you're witnessing to people, you need to let them know that God's radical. And we deserve to be punished. Because we're criminals. Amen. While we were yet criminals or sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. But God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. In another respect, the fear of the Lord uh, and at least the salvation can really be instructive in how it encourages you to see God's plan of salvation and how God works in the hearts of the non-believer, but how he's without partiality. And when you see how it unfolds, biblically speaking, you're like, wow, God truly does will that all would be saved. And there's no mystery as to why certain people are saved and certain people are not, as though God is somehow capricious to others or somehow arbitrary or anything. But he's totally without partiality, the Bible says. That's fascinating. So that really helps you appreciate the love of God and the justice of God, that he's perfectly righteous. There's no shadow of turning in him and that there's clear, specific conditions by which he lays out that will lead people on the path to salvation. So it brings clarity to the plan of salvation. So number one, it shows you the power of the fear of God when you preach God in the totality of who he is to lead people to salvation and how important that is. And number two, it's very, very important in respect to understand how God works and to appreciate that reality. Number three, there's a couple thorny verses that people have a hard time with. They say, it looks like God only wants to save a few right here. It looks like he's only appointed a few people to salvation here. And, and, and it seems like he's contradicting himself. And some will say, there seems to be a contradiction, but since there's not a contradiction, it's a discrepancy, and we'll only understand this in heaven because it seems not a contradiction. I want to clear up the idea that there's a contradiction with a couple different verses that people look at uh, 
So you have to wonder if God's word is maybe contradictory or it'll be resolved in heaven. No, it's not contradictory at all. That a couple verses that we will look at initially in this study will make you think a little bit. But I can guarantee you, if you pay attention to this study, at the end of this study, you will be like looking at both these verses, which some people trip over, and you'll say, praise the Lord, I understand them perfectly. Praise the Lord, that makes perfect sense. And then when you are helping other believers who struggle with some of these verses, you'll be able to help them very easily, because you'll hopefully remember this study and the main principles of this study. So we want to grow in Christ, amen? We want to grow in our understanding of Christ, and... And, and right now, people are fearing, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, because crazy things would happen in the end times, and they are. We knew, we know, we know there'll be wars and rumors of wars. We know we're not supposed to be freaked out, though, because he said the end is not yet, amen? amen. It's not the end, guys. No. There's a lot more to go. And it'll get worse, actually. And there are birth pains. It'll get really ugly, then mellow out, but then it'll get even uglier, and then mellow out, then even uglier. Right now, Israel is getting rockets from Syria, Lebanon, and of course from the Gaza Strip, thousands from the Gaza Strip. And fear of things coming on the earth, yeah, you're in Israel, you'd be fearing, right? But it says their hearts would fail them. But we're not supposed to allow our hearts to fail us, amen? Why? Because we trust the Lord. He's the same Lord that said in the same chapter, Luke 21, when you see these things begin to come to pass, look up for what? Redemption, Redemption, your salvation is drawing near. And that I'll be even right at the door as you see them culminate. So we know that's going to happen. So we don't want to fear the things of this world. That's number four, you know, application-wise. You want to fear God. Don't freak out. about. Be wise about what's going on in the world. Well... What's interesting about the fear of the Lord is we read of Job in chapter 1, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? Why is God giving? I mean, this is a trip. This gets my attention. When I see God, an opinion he has about a man, and he boasts to, the, boasts to Satan about how much he, you know, he holds Job up as a trophy. That, that should get your attention. Well, if that's what he likes about Job, I want to be like that. He's a blameless man. There's none like him on the earth. A blameless man, an upright man. One who what? Fears God and shuns evil. He fears God and he shuns evil. Now, that's interesting because you want to know what the fear of the Lord is? What it looks like? It means that you shun evil, that you walk uprightly before God. That there's not a wickedness in your heart to do wicked because you recognize that you'll stand before God. In fact, Proverbs 8.13 gives a little more insight there. It says, to fear the Lord is to... Ooh, I love this. It tells us what it means to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to... It's to what? It's to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Can you say that's you? Can you say you hate evil? Can you say that you hate pride? Not just in others. A lot of people hate pride in others, but do you hate it in yourself when you see it? It's easy to hate it in others. Do you hate it in yourself? You say, you know what, that ain't right. Everything I have is from the Lord. Amen. Amen. And every good thing has come down from Him. 
And the only thing I can own is messing things up, right? That should cause humility. And humility is looking at God and recognize him as God and you as not, and me as not, right? We're not God. And notice it says, hate, hate evil behavior. So if you're involved in a bunch of evil behavior, you're obviously not hating it, you know? If you're unwilling to repent of it. And to hate perverse speech. If you're like talking, you know, hey, praise the Lord, brother. Hey, I love you, bro. And then you leave here, man, and you're cussing your wife out or your husband out or your kids out or just cussing to cuss. Are you really fearing God? Because my Bible says if you fear the Lord, you're going to hate perverse speech. You say, but I think I fear God, but I do like to cuss. Well, then you don't really fear God. Or you don't fear him as much as you ought to be fearing him. That's for sure. I'm telling you what God's word says. Have you come in here, just get your ears tickled? No. Come in here so you just feel good and get some pats on the back? Or you come in here to confront who you are and say, God, I want to be right with you. If you have perverse speech right here, you should repent. You should say, God, quit having me make excuses. Help me not get upset with the pastor because he's speaking the truth. I know he loves me. I know you love me even more. And I know you're the one that he's just relaying your word. And I just need to get right in this area. Amen? And just make a decision here right now that I'm, I'm going to stop cussing. I'm going to stop using perverse speech. I'm going to talk, stop talking nasty about people and being a gossip. Or however it is, you know, I'm going to stop using four-letter words, colorful language, because I want to look cool. Well, it's not because I want to look cool. Well, what is it for then? Well, because I'm angry. Well, that's okay. don't cuss when you're angry. Repent. Say, God, help me get over this situation, you know? I just like the way it sounds. Well, that's messed up. Fear God more than you like how it sounds, you know? I'm going to get stuck on this verse. I better keep moving, but anyway... So the fear of the Lord leads to salvation. I think it's amazing. I mean, I've had a gentleman here, the same guy, two different times, but he only comes once in a blue moon. And twice when he came, I was preaching on the fear of God. And both times after the service, he came and said, well, I don't believe we need to fear God. And not in the New Testament, just in the Old Testament. And I said both times, I go, do you not realize I was preaching a lot through the New Testament on the fear of the Lord? Well, you know, and I'm like, what in the world? I love the guy. Lord, help him. But I'm like, guys, we'll have some New Testament scriptures on the fear of the Lord, but that's not my point today. But I'm going to show you right here in Revelation at the very end of time, before the Lord returns, look at Revelation 14, verse 6, and we see the everlasting gospel preached. And guess what? This is the gospel of salvation. How they get saved. And look at what's the first words out of the angel's mouth. Verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in the midheaven, having an eternal gospel, to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. This is the gospel for everyone. And he said with a loud voice. He said with a loud voice. What's he say? The fear of God was just for the Old Testament. Is that what he said? No. Don't be concerned about fearing me. I'm not a tough God anymore. No, he says what? Fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his what? Judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven, the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of waters. Man, I'll tell you what, you cannot read the book of Revelation with a sane mind and not fear God. I don't understand how you can go through the things the book of Revelation talks about and not fear God. This blows me away, you know? So, and then throughout the book of Revelation... You don't see, it's really heartbreaking because you don't see where a bunch of people get saved. The world just gets harder and harder and harder 
It's like Pharaoh during the Exodus, you know, in the book of Exodus. But you know what? There is a glimmer of hope because I read in Revelation 11, 11, now after the three and a half days, this is after the two witnesses were killed by the beast, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Great what? Fear. fear. Now what does it mean, great fear? If it was that was all there is, it could mean they feared what happened. It doesn't mean they turned to God. But 11.13 says this, in the same hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Praise God. That shows me at least some people will fear God during the book of Revelation when his judgments come. Amen? Amen. Now, the world at large, it says twice, Revelation 9 and Revelation 16, once under the trumpet judgments, once under the bowl judgments, that they didn't repent to give God glory. Here it says they repented. I'm sorry. Here it says they feared God and they what? Gave him glory. Amen. Which is the opposite of not repenting and giving him glory. So that shows me there'll be some that respond. Okay. So it's really interesting. I really, it's really, really cool. And there's Revelation 15.4, Revelation 19.5. These are other passages that talk about the fear of God in Revelation, which I'm not going to read. But I want to show you scriptures. I'm going to just read four or five real quick that tie salvation into fearing God. You know why I decided to do this message? A couple reasons. And I do preach on the fear of God, but the fear of God often isn't preached on anymore. And that's a travesty in the church. It's actually a wicked thing in the church because you have a lot of professing Christians who don't fear God. But also, I want to do this because I've tied the fear of God into salvation before, but usually it's just a part of my study on the fear of God. I've never done an entire study on the fear of God and salvation, except in one context, which was not that long ago, where in the New Testament, us believers are called to fear God in regard to our salvation that we already have. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Don't be high-minded, but fear, for if the natural branches were broken off, you too could be cut off, right? To, to his apostles, don't fear man who destroy your body, but fear God who's able to destroy body, your body and your soul where? In hell, right? Like five different places in the New Testament where we're warned specifically in regard to our salvation to fear God. That's not taught today. That's not even believed today, even though it's taught by Jesus and the apostles. Well, that was either a full study, I can't remember, not too long ago, but it was, either, it was, it was part of a study at least. This is not about that. This is about the fear of God that leads to salvation, which I mentioned a few verses here and there, but I thought, man, this is such an important teaching so we can get excited about evangelism. It's hard to get there, but man, you just start, start talking about who God is. Why do you think a couple Wednesdays ago I taught all about the attributes of God? Because we need to know who God is. It's, we read a line here, a line there, I'll just do this, do that, but we don't know who God is. So I thought, man, and we, we talk about who he is often here, but I thought, I want to have a full-blown study on the attributes of God that explain who God is, Amen. Now listen to these scriptures that tie the fear of God into salvation. Listen to this. Psalm, or, uh, Psalm chapter 85 verse 9 says, Surely his salvation is near to those who, guess what? Fear him. Catch that? Psalm 85 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Psalm 145 19. Listen to this. Psalm 145, 19. He will fulfill the desire of those who 
fear him, he will also hear their cry and will save them. You catch that? He'll fulfill the desires of those who what? Fear him, but also what? He will also hear their cry and what? Save them. Amen. Proverbs 19.23. The fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may be sleep, sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. Proverbs 14.27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a man from the snares of death. So the fear of God leads us to life, leads us to the fountain of life, leads us to salvation, we read twice. Now, I love Malachi. Do you know God eavesdrops? You know, he kind of listens in on your conversations. It's another reason not to have perverse speech. Because you can't turn around and say, oh, God, I do fear you. He's listening to you cuss up a storm. He's listening to you berate your wife and speak evil on her and curse her and stuff. Hopefully you're not doing that. But if you are, or vice versa, listen to it. But praise God, if you fear God and you talk about the Lord, you know, you ever have those conversations where you talk about the Lord and how awesome he is and so forth? Hopefully all the time. That's what our lives should be marked by is his word, amen, and a love for him and who he is. And you're like, well, I don't know many Christians. Got to get around him more. I mean, if you're here today, praise God. You're like, ah, man, I'm on live stream. Well, if you're close by, come if you can make it. Amen. Praise God that you're listening, though. And we know many of you are live streaming, have a hard time finding fellowships and so forth. But there's a live stream community you can fellowship with, uh, live stream churches we have. Praise God for you guys. We just got back from one in uh, Texas. We had a great time over there with uh, James Jackson and Eric, his wife, and their family and their fellowship there. They just built this beautiful barn, you know. Uh, it needs doors and electricity and stuff still, but it's, it was really wonderful. We had, a, we had a wonderful time. But listen to how God eavesdrops. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord, listen to this, those who what? Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. Isn't that interesting? He listens to people talk who what? Fear him. And twice it mentions that he heard them talk that feared him. And then he wrote a book for them of remembrance for those, it's a book of remembrance for those who fear the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, you're not in that book. Isn't that crazy? And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son and serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. You notice the difference? God makes a distinction between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. And what's the difference between the two? One of them what? Fears the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord... Which camp are you going to be in? The wicked one. The wrong one. That shows me the fear of God is not an option. If you say, I'm a Christian, but I just don't fear God, then you need to know who God is more. You need to read your Bible more. How can you read through the Old Testament and not fear God? Why well, read the New Testament? There's nothing really to fear him. Really? When Jesus says, don't fear man, but, destroy, but fear God, you destroy your body and soul in hell, that's not to fear him? When he, says, don't, when he says, don't be high-minded, but fear, for if God didn't spare the natural branch, he won't spare you. That's not to fear him. When you see Ananias and Sapphira getting killed because of a lie they told, a couple, boom, God kills one, then he kills the other, and then they drag them out of the church setting. 
<laughs> and then it says, the fear of God came upon the whole church. Would you be one and say, I don't fear him? Then there's something wrong. You need to look at who God is. He's a radical God. We'd be God-fearing people, amen? We'd be God-fearing people. Now, last weekend in Texas, I was uh, doing question and answer time. We, we taught like, Chad was up there for the first day, and we both taught once, and then the next day I taught twice, and uh, it was question and answers after the, in the first day, but there was also question and answers after both teachings on the second day. And then on Sunday, I did a teaching without question and answers because it was a Sunday service in the barn. But uh, during my question and answer time, I had, a, asked, had answered questions, and I nicely, lovingly, a little playfully said, hey, and Calvinists get to answer, my Calvinist brothers and sisters, I forget how I put it, but they get to, answer, they get to ask questions first. And I got a question from a sister uh, who I've met before, a really neat lady. Uh, and she's like, yeah, well, I have, she, had a, she had questions, quite a few questions. And, and uh, one of the questions she said had was, you know, she said, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I'm just a T and a P, I think, on the tulip. I don't believe in the U, L, and the I, you know. And, uh, but I'm not even sure if I'm a T, you know. I go, well, the T is total depravity. So our Calvinist brothers and sisters, and I do call them brothers and sisters. My bro- I love my Calvinist brothers and sisters. There's Calvinists that love the Lord. And, of course, well, not all Calvinists are Christians. Well, not all non-Calvinists are Christians either, okay? So it goes both ways. But, um, my, but she said, I'm a, I think I'm a T and a P, but I'm not even sure if I'm a T. Well, the T and the TULIP acronym stands for total depravity, okay? And when you study theology, we need to understand these things. And total depravity means that you're totally depraved, but to what degree, you know? And she says, I'm not sure if I believe in total depravity. I think I do. And I thought, okay, let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Because she's trying to, you know, square her theology and so forth. What do I believe and so forth. What I believe the Bible teaches. And the Calvinist, you know, view of total depravity isn't that you're totally depraved in the sense that you're as wicked as you could possibly be. Some people can mischaracterize it that way. But my Calvinistic brothers and sisters would not say you're as wicked as you could be. They would just say that you're totally depraved, meaning that you're corrupt from head to toe. Okay? That you're corrupt from head to toe. That you have no, uh, there's, you know, that, that the fall has affected the entire person that you are. And we'd, I would agree with that. The fall has affected all of us, amen? It has affected us from head to toe. The heart's deceitful uh, regarding the wicked. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Before the heart's regenerated, it's just bent on wicked things. And we're totally depraved. I would agree with that. But I told her that, I believe in total depravity, but not the way my Calvinist or my Reformed brethren believe in total depravity. And I said, because when they use total depravity, they mean something totally different than what we would mean. Because I can show you John Wesley, who was not a Calvinist, didn't adhere to any of the five points. I can show you Jacob Arminius, who a lot of times the opposite side of the camp is called Arminian after Jacob Arminius, where he was not a Calvinist. And I can show you where Wesley and Jacob Arminius made statements about how depraved the human being is because of the fall that are right up there with, say, John Calvin's or Whitfield's or our Calvinist brothers and sisters. We all agree. We should agree. We all should agree that we uh, are, you know, wicked deplorables without Christ. Amen and need to have a heart change. Amen. But I said this to my sister. I said, hey, I just want to let you know. I'll let you know whether you, be, or whether you adhere to the T of the tulip or not. And I asked her a question. 
I said, do you believe that you need to be born again before you can actually believe in Jesus? Do you believe that somewhere through your life you are born again, regenerated, and then sometime later, whether it could be like Shed and other Reformed leaders in the past have taught you can even be born again as a baby, and then later you come to faith. Or, as many Calvinists say, you're born again, and then after you're born again, then, you know, then you can put your faith in Jesus. Or do you believe that you put your faith in Jesus and then you receive life? You put your faith in Jesus and then you're born again. Which do you believe? And she says, oh, I believe that you have to put your faith in Jesus, then you're born again. And I'm glad she said that because there's not two or ten, but there's scores of scriptures, maybe a hundred or so in the New Testament, which show, believe and thou shalt have life. Amen? Amen. As many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, right? You know, how do I get born again, Jesus? Do I go through my weather's womb again? Nicodemus says no. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever, what? Believes in him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. The Bible says it speaks of repentance unto life. Over and over again, it's believe or repent, and then the life comes. Amen? And you can't read the New Testament come to any other conclusion unless you're ignoring all those verses because you have some kind of bias, and you try to find something that you can make yourself believe, well, maybe this will help me. So I told her, you don't believe in the tea of tulip. I said, so now, you know, you just got the pea going, you know, which we dealt with the pea, you know, in that, in, in that conference a bit. And I had a great talk with her, you know. Um, we're all hanging out afterwards, after I think the second day, you know, I think 30 people or so. We had nearly 100 people there at the conference, I think, that day. But 30 or 40 or so, I think, went to the uh, uh, really good Mexican Moriscos. Seafood. You put seafood and Mexican food together? Lord, help me now. Get off track here. Ooh, so good, man. And, uh, but I, and she came. We, we, I sat by her and her, I think it's her husband. We had a great chat. But a scripture that she brought up, though, uh, which a lot of my Calvinist brothers and sisters bring up, which is a scripture you really should wrestle with and understand what's he saying there. And when you first look at it, because it's one of the main scriptures my Reformed brothers and sisters bring up. It's such a beautiful verse. But you have to understand the context in which it's written. And that is, uh, if you go to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 44. John six forty-four. And she goes, what about this verse, though? And this is used a lot. That's a great question. And she read the verse. And it says, no one can come to me, says Jesus. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So she says, what about this? It says, nobody can come to him unless the Father draws him. And I said, that's true. We have to be drawn, you know. And I let her know that uh, we believe Many Christians don't understand this, but we believe very strongly we can't come to Jesus, amen, unless the Father draws us, amen, because all of us like sheep have gone astray, amen, and there's none who does right, there's not one, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. None of us are, none of us come out of the womb seeking God and, and, and you know, crying out to God without God working our lives. So I said, that's true. I go, but the question is, does he only ever draw just the elect is the question. Now, there's a scripture I often go to when I look at this, but I wanted to be more poignant tonight. 
And I want to talk about how the fear of the Lord factors into what we're reading here in its context. And when you understand the fear of the Lord, all of a sudden, I'm guaranteeing this for you pretty much. Maybe not your first time through this. Maybe you have to listen again. Probably not, though, but you might have to. Who knows? Your mind could be wandering or you just think about something else. But you're going to get it. You're going to say, ah, that makes sense. Because you've got to look at the context. Context is everything. Now, keep your finger there and go to Acts chapter 13. She didn't bring up this scripture, but this is a scripture that people, that my Reformed brothers and sisters, and we need to have friendly debates, you guys. We need to recognize that Calvinists are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? But you know what the shame is? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest with you right now. The shame is the Calvinists are winning the debates. Not when you see a Calvinist and a non-Calvinist debating. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about because if you go to Calvinistic churches, Reformed churches, guess what they're always talking about? Their view of salvation. So guess what their people are always learning about? Their view of salvation. So guess what happens online? They're constantly, not tens, hundreds, but by the tens of thousands, trying to recruit people to their viewpoint. But guess what happens in non-Calvinistic churches? They don't talk about these issues. So guess what happens to people in these non-Calvinistic churches? They fall prey to those ideas. Then they start believing that God only wants to save a few. Then they start wondering if Jesus even died for them because my Calvinist brothers and sisters believe he only died for a few people. And they, wonder, and they hope that they're one of them. And I know that because I counsel people through the years that come from other churches. I had a couple sisters from John MacArthur's church visit, and I still see uh, them. I, I've seen them a, cu a couple times. I've seen one of them a few times, and she's still in fellowship with us. But both thinking they're damned, and they have no hope of salvation because wondering if they're reprobate, thinking Jesus didn't die for them. Well, praise God, not now. I think they're both doing well. And one of them heard one of my messages I did called, Did Jesus Die for Everyone? She said she listened to it three times. And she said to me, she came to me, she goes, I just want to let you know, I listened to that three times. For the first time in my life, I believe I'm saved that Jesus loves me and he died for me, you know? That makes it all worth it. And because there's not a lot of voices doing what I'm doing, and it is salvation, is there anything more important than the doctrine of salvation? We're talking about the doctrine of salvation. So we could just stick on John 3.16 all the time and talk about it and say very little, or we could study it, amen? But I thought, I don't want to just study 6.44. I want to look at the bigger picture of the fear of God. Now, this is interesting. This verse here, if you look at John 6, 44, now please, I'm not teaching what, what I say in the next minute is, is me not with my Calvinistic glasses on, okay? My Calvinist hat on, my John Calvin hat on. And I'm going to just kind of approach it and say, hey, look at John 13, 48. Just pretend we're, you're in a Calvinist church for a minute. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been what? appointed to what? Eternal life believed. Now, brothers and sisters, doesn't it seem to say that the ones who were what? The ones that believed were the ones that were what? Appointed to eternal life. In other words, they were appointed by God to eternal life. That's why they believed. And if they weren't appointed to eternal life, they wouldn't have believed. And God didn't appoint the other ones to eternal life, otherwise they would have believed. Now, we don't know why God appointed these guys to believe, and he didn't appoint the other ones to believe, but God only appoints certain people to believe because ultimately he only decrees that certain people be saved, and he withholds grace for others because he ultimately, with his decree, only wants to save a few. Hence, John 6, 44, 
You know, nobody can come to me unless the Father draws him. The, you know, the Father only draws a few. He only draws those he appoints to eternal life. And only those guys can be saved. So only us Calvinists and other ones that aren't Calvinists too, whoever they are, that God draws can be saved. And the only ones he appoints to eternal life can believe. But guess what? The rest are damned. You know, God's predestined them to hell. God's predestined them to damnation. They, had no, no, they, got, they were never going to be able to be saved because God ultimately only decreed that some would be saved. Now, some would say, no, he decrees some people's salvation, but he just passes by the others. Calvin taught double predestination. He predestines most people's damnation, predestines others' salvation. That would be, you know, pretty much how a Calvinist might share that, right? But I'm guaranteeing you, if you pay attention now, by the time we get to the end of the service, you'll look at John 6, 44. You'll look at chapter 13, verse 48 of Acts, and you'll get, I understand that, and also I have a really good answer for it, too, if this ever comes up. These are two of the main verses that are used in this debate. However, remember the three or four things, I think four things I said to you at the beginning of our talk, there's all kinds of things you can get out of this message. And the fear of the Lord is, is key, you guys. The fear of the Lord is key. Back now to John chapter 6, verse 44. Now the context there is that Jesus is offering eternal life. He's offering himself as the bread of life to Jews who are following him. He knows that they'd followed him because I don't have time to read everything that came before that because we're going to look at a lot of verses today. But they followed him, and he says, you followed me because you saw that I fed the multitudes. Now you're following me. But he says, you know, you, you ate the father, your fathers ate the manna that came down because, but I'm the bread that gives eternal life. He's offering them eternal life. Now, you dare not miss the context because my Calvinist brothers and sisters in John 6.44, they know he only wants to draw these people to salvation, and he didn't really want to save the other ones that aren't coming. And I say, really? Back up to John 5. Look what he says to these people that are rejecting him in chapter 5. And when you back up to John 5, he says to them in verse 34, but the testimony which I received is not from man, but I say these things that you may be what? Does he want to save them or not? Yes or no? Is that clear or unclear? It's clear. He wants to save them. Amen. But look at what he says to them in verse 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me and you are what? Unwilling to come to me that you may have what? Life. I mean, we can close our Bibles right now almost, but that wouldn't have explained John 6.44 sufficiently. That just shows you, before you get to John 6.44, you have to say yes and amen to John 6.34, uh, or John 5.34, and 39 and 40. I'm, so if, you know, if he's saying to them, I'm saying these things that you may be saved, and you search the Scriptures diligently because in them you think you have eternal life, but see that talk about me, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. What's he saying? I want to save you. I'm speaking to you in such a way so you receive salvation, but you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life. Because, And that's important because he's showing them that they have responsibility and that they are freely rejecting his offer to life, and he truly wants to save them. Because in John 6.44, they're using that as though you don't have you can't come to Christ because he really doesn't want to save you ultimately. Which contradicts John 5. John 6, 44 cannot contradict John 5, 34 and 39 and 40. So what's going on? 
Either we're misunderstanding 5, 34 and 39 and 40, which is really hard to misunderstand that. It's as clear as day. Or what's the meaning of John 6, 44? See, when our Calvinist brothers and sisters talk about total depravity, what they mean is total inability. And what they mean, you're so enabled because of your fallen nature that you cannot even receive the message of grace and understand what Jesus did for you. And you can't come to him unless he you're first born again. And then when you're born again, then you can understand the gospel, then come. By the way, if I'm already born again, why do I even need to come though, right? And by the way, the Bible says he that practices sin. The Bible says he that's born of God does not practice sin. Amen? So if I'm already born of God, I'm not practicing sin, so why do I need to even repent and, and receive Christ? It just doesn't make sense. But back to John 6.44. Now let's look at John 6.44. He's talking to them, and he's saying that he is the bread of life that's come down from heaven. And he says to them that he gives, he offers them, you know, eternal life. You know, and uh, that's very, very important. And, and uh, look at verse 33. For the bread, of, that, uh, uh, the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives what? Life to the world. He's offering them life if they just come to him, but they're unwilling to come to him that they might be saved, which shows you there's a will. See, we, we don't teach total inability. We teach inability except for the grace of God. But we don't need, believe you need to be born again. We believe God just needs to open your eyes to your sinful state to convict you of sin, amen, and show your need for him. And so you can, you can, you can trust in him. You don't need to be born again to trust in Jesus. How do I know that? Because the apostles believed in Jesus, didn't they? Remember, Jesus said, who am I to Peter? Who do you say that I am? Matthew 16. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven has revealed this to you, right? Well, guess what? That's before Peter was born again. Because it's not until John 20, after the resurrection, long after that, that Jesus breathes on him and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was with them, but not in them yet, prior to that time. Now he's quickened. Now he's born again. Because Jesus has died for their sins. Amen? He rose again. Now he, now he can give them, he can enter into their hearts. Amen? Because the veil of the temple has been torn and now he can come and live in them. And now he can bring them into the, hev in, into the heavens. So back to, now back to John. Let's, let's uh, go to John chapter 6, verse 44. Now pay attention. Pay attention. You don't want to miss this point. This is not to the time to leave unless you really have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Amen. And I will raise him up on the last day. Well, who is it that he draws? I want to know who it is that he draws then. Look at the very next verse. Context is king. I always tell you, look at what comes before and after a verse when you're not understanding a verse. John 6.45. It is written in the prophets. What's written in the prophets? Ooh, here's the key. It's written in the prophets. And they shall be, all, they shall What? All be taught of God. Everyone who has what? Heard and then what? And learn from the Father what? Comes to me. Now I know who are the ones he's drawing. He first of all, well, they, how many will be taught? All. Now all aren't necessarily going to respond. 
but they will all be taught of God, right? But he what? Who has heard and what? And learned. I'm hearing, I'm learning. You know what it means to be a disciple? It means to be a learner. The ones who hear, but don't just hear, but they learn, are the ones that are drawn by the Father and come to Jesus. Thus saith the prophets. Well, now we need to look in the Old Testament and say, well, what were the prophets teaching about hearing and learning and coming to God? And how does that relate to 644? I posit to you, and especially clear in the Gospel of John, that there are a bunch of people that are followers of Yahweh. They're followers, you know, of the Father who is in heaven. Right? The Old Testament Jews, right? And many of them are not truly following him. And those who aren't truly hearing and learning, guess what? They're not going to be drawn to the Father. Because Moses says, I'm sorry, Jesus says in John chapter 5, right before this, I'm saying these things that you may be saved, right? But you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. He says, if you would have believed Moses, you would believe who? You'd believe me. Are you with me? If you believe Moses, you would believe me. Are you with me? In other words, guess what? Those who are hearing and learning, right? would be the ones that would be drawn. Are you with me? Now, if you go to the Old Testament, let's go to, well, before you go to the Old Testament, listen to John 7. He brings it out clearly in verse 17. If anyone is willing, Jesus says this, because they're wondering if he's a Messiah or not. And Jesus says in John 7, 17, the next chapter, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, follow us now. If you're willing to do the Father's will, right? To hear and learn from the Father, guess what? If you're willing, you're going to what? You're going to know who I am. Amen? So those who are hearing and are learning are the ones who will come to the Father. Now check this out. What does that have to do with fear of the Lord? Everything. Because what is the prerequisite to Growing in the knowledge of the Lord. Come on, guys. You really want to understand this, man. You want to say, okay, what's going on here? Because this is, this is a huge key to understanding something really beautiful when you're sharing with people in your own walk with Jesus. The fear of the Lord. It's only those who fear the Lord who will be given knowledge. Those who are hearing and learning are growing in knowledge. Amen? Are you with me? Because all will be taught... And those who hear and those who learn will come to me. So what's the key? The, the knowledge of the Lord. Well, yeah, the knowledge of the Lord, of course. But how do you get it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? It's the beginning of wisdom, but it's also the beginning of knowledge and understanding. It's all three. Listen to this. Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 2.5. Then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Proverbs 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Job 28.28. And to the man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. Check this out. John 6.44. Who does he draw? Those he teaches, teaches all, but those, who, not every, but those who hear, right, and learn will come to him. Who's that? The ones who are growing in knowledge. Who's that? The ones who fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? 
knowledge. So if you fear God in the Old Testament, and you fear God when Jesus is on the scene, you're going to have knowledge of God, right, in your heart. You're going to be learning. You're going to be hearing what he say, because I fear God. What's, what's he mean by that? I'm going to be learning. Amen? And guess what? You're one that truly wants God. You don't know Jesus yet. You don't know the Messiah, but now he's here. But guess what? Because you're one of those that belongs to the Father, he gives, the Father gives his sheep to Jesus, it says. There's people that belong to the Father before Jesus came on the scene. Do you know that? And then you read in John 10 that he gives his sheep, he transitions his sheep from his hand, the Father, into Jesus' hands. Now we're in both of their hands. And he gives his sheep to them. Now, it gets clear. Go to Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1. My son, he says, and I wanted you to notice the words if, because this is after 1 7, the fear of the Lord's beginning of knowledge. In chapter 2, verse 1, my son, if you will receive my words, if it's a condition, and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord, God, uh, for the Lord gives wisdom. For his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. You guys see that? You have to seek knowledge. That comes from fearing the Lord. Then you grow in your knowledge and your fear of the Lord. He only draws those guys who fear him. Because it's only those that fear him that hear him and learn from him. So the prerequisite to being drawn is to what? Learn. Hear and learn, right? But the prerequisite to learn, to have knowledge is what? The fear of the Lord. Remember, who does he draw? Those who what? John 6, 45. Who does he draw? No, according to verse 45. Those who... Well, 645, according to just 645, the word fear isn't there. He draws those who what? Hear and learn. Amen. And those are the ones who fear him. Now, back up to Proverbs chapter 1, since you're in Proverbs chapter 2. And what does chapter 1 verse 7 say? say? The fear of the Lord is beginning of what? Beginning of knowledge. But look what happens here. Look at verse 20. Wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. Remember, you want to learn it. You want to learn wisdom. You want to hear. You want to learn. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her sayings. How long, O naive ones, will you love being simple-minded? And scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. Turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called, and you what? You refused. I stretched out my hand, and you what? And no, and no one paid attention. And you neglected all my counsel. And you did not want my reproof. I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. When your dread comes like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when your distress and anguish comes upon you, then they will call on me, and I will not answer. It'll be too late. It's like when the door shut on the virgins, right? They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Because what? Tells us why. Does it say because they were unconditionally reprobated from... Eternity past? No, it's because of a decision. Because they hated knowledge and did not what? And did not choose the fear of the Lord. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. So before Jesus even comes on the scene, you have people that hate knowledge, don't fear the Lord. They're scoundrels or criminals or wicked. Now some of them will wake up, he calls them repentance, you know, he shows them their sin, and they'll come to Christ. Amen. 
But others are hard in their hearts. I'm not coming to him. I don't, I don't. Well, guess what? The Father draws those. He teaches all, but those who hear and learn, what? Those are the ones that fear him are the ones that are drawn to him. Amen? Are you with me? So if somebody says, well, you know what? You can't come to Jesus, you know, unless, you know, he, he, you know, he just draws the elect. You want to say, well, who are the elect? Uh, well, he just, you know, it's mysterious. No, it's not. It's those who fear the Lord. He knows who will fear him, and he draws them to himself. Amen? In fact, go to Proverbs chapter 25, verse 12. It gets so cool. I love this stuff. I love it because you get to see the mind of God. You get to see that he's not capricious. He's not arbitrary. You don't have to say, oh, it's a mystery as to why he really wants to decree most people he burned, even though he could just save them. No, he won't save them against their will. I heard a lady today, and it broke my heart. And I was already thinking about doing this study, and I heard a lady today on the internet, somebody sent me a, a deal, and I'm listening, and she's just talking about how I was a Christian, but, and she tripped over these types of verses. She goes, then I saw that God, God's not really, there's no really, and no free will really, and God's not, you know, and on and on she went. I'm like, no, she misunderstands these texts. And all kinds of atheists debate Christians, and they try to use the Calvinistic understanding, which is not our understanding, not the true understanding, not the early church understanding, against us as a weapon, and say, well, God really wants most people to be down. What kind of God is that? He's capricious. It's like, no, that's not the biblical God. He wants all to be saved. There is free moral choice. There is free moral agency. There is libertarian uh, free will. Well, look at chapter 25, verse 12. Who then are those who fear the Lord? He will instruct them in what? Look at what it says, guys. Are you with me? I'm sorry, Psalm. Did I say Proverbs? I am so sorry. I did not hit my face if you weren't looking. That was my hand I hit. Okay. I've tapped my face a few times and I got really upset with myself, though. I admit that. Yes, it looks much better. <laughs> verse 20, chapter 25 of Psalms, verse 12. Who then are those who fear the Lord? Look what he says. He, that is God, will instruct them in what? In the way they should choose. Check that out. If someone fears the Lord, I don't care if they're in Papua New Guinea. I don't care if they're in the Amazon. I don't care if they're in Africa somewhere. I don't care if they're in, 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 a, in an inner city, wherever they're at. If they fear the Lord, what does he say he'll do? He will instruct them in the way they should choose. I love that. What's the way they should choose? John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He's the way they should choose because he is the way. So what's the Father going to do for those who fear him? He's going to instruct them to Jesus. He's going to draw them to Jesus. Amen? Are you with me? Can I hear Hallelujah. By the way, the, the Christianity is called the way. I love that. In Acts chapter 9, verse 2, Acts chapter 19, verse 9, chapter, verse 23, chapter 22, verse 4, chapter 24, verse 14, chapter 24, verse 22, Christianity over and over is called the way. And if you fear him, he's going to direct you to the way. In fact, look at verse 13 in chapter 25, Psalm 25. They will spend their days in prosperity, and their descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him, and he makes his what? He makes his covenant known to them. Well, praise God for that. So he's going to show me Jesus if I fear him. Amen. And he's going to what? Make his covenant known to me. What covenant though? Covenant salvation, man. Jeremiah 31, 31. I'll make a new covenant with you. Luke chapter 22. Uh, in the Gospels, verses uh, Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus says, "The days are I'm sorry, the days are coming to close, the Lord, when I make you a new covenant." That's in a Jeremiah thirty one thirty one, and then in a in a Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus says, "This is the blood of the new what 
covenant. He directs us to the covenant. I love that. Now let's go to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, verse 48. Oh, let's get a little context now. Verse 46. Acts 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first. That is the Jew. Salvation is to the Jew first, then the Greek. It was necessary uh, for the word of God to be spoken to you first since you repudiated it. They were rejecting it. So it doesn't mean they didn't have a choice. Paul says this is kindness that leads you to repentance to the Jews in Romans 4. Jesus says, How often I would gather you together as a hen does her chicks, but you were unwilling. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, your children. Oh, draws. But you were unwilling. His heart's for the Jews, but they repudiate it. It's not that there's no choice by the time you get to verse 48. And judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You guys are making the choices. But then look what he says. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were what? Many, has been, many has, had been appointed to eternal life believed. Yes, they were appointed to eternal life. But you know why they were appointed to eternal life? What is he going to do for people that fear God? What's he going to do for those who fear God? He's going to point them to the way, to Jesus. Amen. He's going to show them the new covenant. Amen. Well, how do you know it's because they fear the Lord? Back up to verse 26. Right here. Fellow children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent because the fear of the Lord leads to salvation. For those of you who fear the, fear the Lord, for those who fear God, you God-fearers, these are the God-fearing Gentiles. And guess what? What was God appointing the God-fearing Gentiles to? Any God-fearing people? To salvation. Are you with me? Amen. Praise the Lord. God is so good. Remember Cornelius. Remember Cornelius. Remember, he was another Gentile. Remember, he, he, what does it say about Cornelius? He was a centurion. He was radical. We don't have much time left, so I've got a few more minutes. So look at Acts chapter 10, verse 2. It says, he was a devout man, one who what? One who feared God with all his household and made many charitable contributions to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. He doesn't know Jesus, but guess what he does? He fears the Lord. What does the Lord promise to do for those who fear him? Those who are Hearing, those who are learning, he's going to draw them to him. Jesus, amen. Those who fear him, he's going to make his covenant known to them. He's going to direct them in the way. That's Jesus. Cornelius, it's up, man. Cornelius, you're going to get saved, dude. Because you just keep fearing God, man. Well, look at chapter 10, verse 34. He preaches the gospel to Cornelius, Peter does. God moves heaven and earth. He uses angels, visions, and everything to bring these two together. Then Peter shares the gospel with, with Cornelius. And we read in verse 34. Open his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is, does not want to show what? Partiality. Partiality. Let that sink in, guys. He is not a Calvinist. I'm not, he's not one to show partiality, but in every nation, everywhere. I love this. The one who what? Fears, Fears him and does what is right is what? Welcome to him. Think of Job. Job was a Gentile. Job was written, some believe the book of Job was written even before Moses wrote Genesis. Way back then it was written, sometime around that time. But guess what? He was a Gentile. There was no temple. He never heard Moses and he had no, well, how did God get these things to him? Job 1.1, there was a man from the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. He feared the Lord. So guess what? God made known to him. Not through the Old or New Testament Scriptures. 
God made it known to him. What does it say God made known to him? What did Job know? Listen to Job chapter 19, verse 25 and 26. As for me, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I will see God. Don't you see the beauty of God's heart? A Gentile who knows nothing about the Old and New Testament scriptures, they haven't been written. And if some of the Old Testament written first, he knows nothing about it. Yet he knows he has a Redeemer who lives. He knows he's going to be resurrected. Why? Because he responded to the light that God gave him in creation and realized, there's a creator, I want to be right with him. And he feared that creator, and God made his covenant known to him. And he showed him the way he should walk. He showed him Jesus. Amen? Thus saith the word of God. Ooh, I have one minute left. I'm going to make use of it. John 12, 32. A little bit later, the same word, hakuo, hakuo, which is used uh, in John 6, 44, being drawn. Jesus says, and I, if I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw who? All men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate what kind of death by which he would was to die. The crowd then answered to him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, while you have the light, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Amen? Then you have a choice. He wants to draw all of them to him. And yeah, that word draw can mean be used of drawing something physically irresistibly. But in the scriptures, it also speaks of that same word draw in the Old Testament Septuagint. The Lord says he draws inwardly with loving kindness. And it's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. Romans 12, Romans 2, 1 through 4. But the Jews stubbornly rejected and built up wrath from themselves in the day of wrath. It says you can reject that. I think it's Acts 7.51. Paul said, I'm sorry, Stephen said, when he preached his message to all these Jews who stoned him to death, he says, how long will you continue to resist the Holy Spirit? You can resist his call, but don't resist it. Because the Bible says that the Spirit and the bride say come, Revelation 22.17. And let him that hears say come. And whoever will, let him come and drink of the water of life freely. Amen. It's there for you. Don't have to wonder if the Lord loves you. So when you see these verses, John 6.44, or uh, Acts chapter uh, 13, verse 48. We don't go, oh no, what does that mean? Oh, that's scary. What does that mean? Is God arbitrary or partial? No, you say, praise the Lord. I know exactly what that means because I know the context is that he appoints those and draws those to eternal life who are already responding to him and fear him. Amen? amen. Can I hear an amen? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's all please stand. The Lord